Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the CLL Society and Cancer Care. And our program is called Life with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL. And this is part one, Managing Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia and Its Complications. And uh, today's uh, workshop is, again, a collaboration between the CL Society and Cancer Care, and there are many other uh, cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well that have collaborated uh, for today's program. Um, and um, because of your interest in the program today and the collaboration, we have over 430 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. Um, so from urban and rural and suburban areas. And we also have participants internationally from Australia, Bangladesh, Canada, Lebanon, Mexico, Sweden, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a global call, and uh, we appreciate all of you being on the call today and taking the time to spend this with, with us today. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and we thank them for their support. Now, we have the best speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. John Pagel. Dr. Pagel is Chief of Hematologic Malignancies Program, Director of Stem Cell Transplantation, Swedish Cancer Center. And Dr. Pagel will be addressing an overview of CLL, including staging and CLL prognostic factors, understanding CLL treatment options, new and emerging treatment choices, the role of clinical trials, and key questions to ask your healthcare team to find the best treatment approach for you. It's now my great pleasure to turn the program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pagel. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. It's great to be with everybody today. I uh, am lucky enough to be on this call with some people I think uh, will, will uh, really provide some great information. Dr. Danilov is an amazing researcher in the field of CLL, and I think we're all lucky to hear from him. And Patty Kaufman brings tremendous value to patients through the CLL Society, and I'm always fortunate and thankful to know Patty and to work with her. And of course, Carolyn, thanks for having me. I'm going to spend a few minutes just giving a big overview of CLL, but I'm mostly going to try and transition a little bit to understanding how we approach patients with regard to treatment, the different treatment choices in general that we approach patients with, and try and give a little bit of a flavor about where we're going and the new exciting drugs on the horizon and how that plays a, a role in participation, perhaps in clinical trials. So, you know, I'm not going to say a lot about CLL in general. Most everybody on this call, they're pretty savvy now. You've been uh, probably exposed to uh, the CLL world uh, in one way or another for some time. Even if you're newly diagnosed, the amount of information out there is obviously abundant you know that this is a blood cancer. Of course, you can have a cancer of any part of your body, meaning that a cell just might behave abnormally. So that's perhaps in the breast or the colon or the lung. And in this case, it just happens to be in a blood cell. Blood's an organ. It just happens to be in a liquid form. And most of the time when we have a, a blood cancer, it happens in a white blood cell we call a lymphocyte. Lymphocytes normally are important for fighting infections. They have a job to do and that is primarily to keep us healthy. And when something goes wrong in one of those lymphocytes, it can lead to a variety of different blood cancers. But when it happens in a relatively mature cell that uh, has perhaps been around for a while and living in lymph nodes, that leads to a disease we call chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And when I say it's a mature cell, those mature cells lead to diseases that behave very chronically or in a very slow-growing, indolent way. And in fact, CLL is really the hallmark is that it typically behaves in a very indolent, slow-growing way. So it's chronic, it's lymphocytic because the disease happens in that lymphocyte, that type of white blood cell. 
and it's leukemia. Primarily, leukemia just means that this circulates in the blood. It's a blood-based disease. That's the definition there. And of course, we all know that this disease primarily affects people who are a little bit older. Um, there are some younger people, of course, diagnosed every year, but most people are in their 60s, 70s, or perhaps 80s. And the vast majority of patients, the vast majority are going to live full, healthy, good lives all the way up into their 80s or more and hopefully have uh, something else that becomes problematic for them and not their CLL. And that's not uncommon. That does happen almost always. Regardless, however, we do need to treat people every now and then. If you have a need to get treated, it's important to get treated. We know that. So those are things like uh, your spleen is getting too big, it's causing symptoms, perhaps some pain, or perhaps the lymph nodes are doing the similar thing of being too big, or sometimes the white blood cell count or the lymphocyte count can be doubling too fast. We know if that's happening at a doubling rate of six months or less, people are going to start feeling poorly. Sometimes when these cells grow too much in the bone marrow, bone marrow is just a big lymph node, it crowds out the normal cells so we can get low red blood cells or low platelets. These are all reasons to get treatment. And unless we have something like that, we just watch people because we know that people will do very well for years and years typically. And when there is one of those things where you need some therapy, well then that's when we intervene. And the great news about CLL is that there's a huge menu of treatment choices for patients with CLL. They go from very, very conservative, very well-tolerated, easy-to-deliver therapies. The majority of those therapies we use for CLL fall into that kind of realm. The other end of the menu or the other end of the spectrum are very, very aggressive therapies such as stem cell transplant approaches, perhaps something new and exciting called CAR T-cell approaches. Those are very unusual to do in CLL, very uncommon, and they're very aggressive, and they come with a lot of risk. So we don't do all that, mostly because we don't need to typically. We have all kinds of really good drugs now that keep people healthy and out of the doctor's office and perhaps where they're being seen every three months or six months or maybe even once a year, despite the fact that they have this disease, and sometimes are even on treatment during that time. And the treatments come in big buckets, big flavors. One flavor is chemotherapy. Everybody's familiar with what chemotherapy means, albeit I will say most chemotherapies that we deliver for CLL are very well tolerated. You don't lose your hair. They're all done as an outpatient, and they're highly effective. And the advantage to chemotherapy is that in fact they are highly effective and that they are delivered for a very limited time frame. So you might get therapy over a handful of months and then be done and your disease goes into remission and it may stay that way for many years, perhaps even longer than many years and that's not uncommon. Of course, we've also though transitioned largely away from chemotherapy for this disease. Lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that when people are a little bit older, or maybe has some other health, uh, health issues, health problems. Dr. Danilov will tell us about some of that perhaps. Then we're starting to think about therapies that might not be chemotherapy. In the next bucket are what we call targeted treatments or perhaps uh, agents that are delivered as an oral pill commonly and they're used to perhaps inhibit a protein or enzyme that's inside the CLL cell and to kill it. And I'll mention a couple of those here in a minute. And the last bucket is what we call immunotherapy, or ways to make the immune system work better and a way to recruit the immune system to fight the CLL. So those are things like antibodies. Everybody's very familiar with the antibody rituximab, also obinutuzumab, ofatumumab. Now a new one coming down the pipe, ublituximab. You get the idea. These are all antibodies that are made in the laboratory, of course, we can make antibodies in our own body to fight infections. We can make these antibodies in the laboratory and engineer them to target CLL cells, and those, cell, those therapies are highly efficacious, meaning they work well, and these therapies are extremely well tolerated. So in general, three big buckets. They're either chemotherapy, they're either targeted treatments, 
or their immune-related therapies, immunotherapies. And then I should say, if there were to be a fourth bucket, it's a combination of those things all together, and that's a very common thing that we do. I will just give a highlight on each of those buckets, perhaps very briefly. One of the buckets, of course, is chemotherapy. And commonly in the United States, we might use a regimen called bendamustine or rituxan. It's delivered intravenously. It's delivered monthly. People do extremely well, and it's, again, very good at controlling disease. When we give chemotherapy, the biggest thing that we're concerned about and we watch for are infections. So we watch for fevers closely. And it's important for you to be in good, perhaps, uh, communication with your doctor and understanding with how you report fevers and deal with fevers with your provider and how you actually deal with them. In the targeted therapy group, we've really revolutionized how we treat patients with CLL. It's been remarkable. Now the biggest player that's been there and around for, you know, maybe eight or nine years now coming up on nine is a targeted therapy known as ibrutinib. It targets a protein inside the CLL cell called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. Not necessarily important for us to get into that description in great depth here, but you should learn about that. I'd encourage you to know that this is an agent that's delivered or in an oral tablet and it's very well tolerated and that it is not chemotherapy and people can do very well. One of the downsides perhaps to that therapy or these oral therapies is that we tend to give them to patients indefinitely. So you might be taking one of these pills indefinitely. Now we are developing data and it's actually going to be discussed at our annual American Society of Hematology meeting just here in the first week of December about stopping therapy for patients, and we'll have new data on that, and that will assuredly lead to the idea that we can stop patients and then restart them with an oral targeted therapy if and when their disease were to relapse. There are other agents now approved in this setting. There's a second uh, drug that was approved many years ago, which targets a protein called PI3 kinase. Again, not necessarily for the details, but a drug such as idelalisib has also been very important in this disease. And then the third one is a drug that targets something called BCL2, another oral agent known as venetoclax. You get the idea of these drugs being oral, delivered uh, daily, and that they work. And they may work for long periods of time. They're typically very well tolerated but we also want to always improve on those drugs. So now we are generating newer generations of these classes of drugs. So we have newer Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, in particular one that will emerge more prevalently in the near future is called a calibrutinib. It's a newer version of ibrutinib. And the beauty of that drug is that it appears to have a few, uh, some fewer side effects. Uh, that might be appropriate for one patient over another. We have newer PI3 kinase inhibitors, and many of them are coming down the pike. They're, again, perhaps going to be new and improved versions. And a variety of new drugs that are in development. And while I only have a little bit of time left, I'll just say this is where clinical trial participation becomes incredibly important. Not for the research community. Of course, it does for that. We want to develop new drugs that help people but actually for patients today who have CLL. The drugs that are in clinical trials today are big advances, likely over what we have currently available and approved by the FDA. Know that any drug that gets approved in CLL has to go through the clinical trial process. So all the drugs I've already talked about, they have been through clinical trial development. And the bar is set high now. We have so many good drugs that we have to actually show major improvements in how they work and the side effects to actually uh, get these drugs into a clinical trial. So the drugs in a trial aren't just uh, looked at just for the heck of it. These drugs have tremendous promise. Please, I would encourage you and strongly support that you always ask your doctor about a clinical trial that might be right for you and research that on the internet. Go to good, reputable places to find out what clinical trials might be relevant in your area 
or perhaps in other areas that you might be willing to get to. So those are things like the CLL Society, and Patty's going to tell us about that. I would encourage you to look at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Those groups in particular do an amazing job of steering patients to the right treatment that might be relevant for them. Oh, you heard that noise. That's my alarm going off telling me that my time is up. So, you know, I could have talked for a long time. I'm going to let Dr. Danilov go next because he's got perhaps more practical information, and he might give a little bit more information on the use of these novel agents and where they play a role in future therapy for CLL. But thank you guys for listening for a bit, and I'll let uh, Carolyn, you uh, jump back in now. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Hagel. That was really wonderful um, and actually um, covered a lot in a brief amount of time, and we will have time for questions for you, um, but you really set a wonderful stage for the program today and really explaining CLL, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Alexi Danilov. Dr. Danilov is Associate Professor of Medicine, Knight Cancer Institute, Argonne Health and Science University, OHSU. And Dr. Danilov is going to be addressing managing complications of CLL, including infection, anemia, and other symptoms and side effects, coping with colds and flu at this time of year. That's really an important topic. The role of supportive care in managing the complications of CLL and dealing with CLL and other health problems and comorbidities and communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. It's now my really great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Danilov. Thank you very much, and um, it's always a pleasure to um, uh, do this for the CLL Society, and uh, certainly always a privilege to speak alongside Dr. Pagel, who has uh, shaped the field of CLL in the past uh, 10 years. So um, without further ado, let's talk about um, uh, complications of CLL. And... Um, um, one of the major major issues that we have with chronic lymphocytic leukemia is infections. That's one of the most frequent of uh, complica complications uh, of CLL that we uh, ultimately have to deal with. And um, as Dr. Pagel has mentioned, um, uh, many patients with CLL do not require treatment uh, at diagnosis and, uh, in fact, can go for many years uh, without therapy. Uh, we have never shown that uh, uh, so far, at least in the age of chemoimmunotherapy, that uh, early treatment of CLL is helpful. We typically would wait until symptoms develop. However, infections um, can uh, happen at any stage uh, in CLL, uh, either uh, before therapy, during this watch and wait, period and certainly as a complication of uh, therapy. And uh, that happens because CLL um, unfortunately has a quality where it can repress the normal immune system in, um, in our bodies and uh, compromise response to infectious agents. So uh, the typical infections that may occur in folks who have CLL would be pneumonias, uh, you know, sinusitis, chronic sinusitis. They are more susceptible to flu and uh, uh, common colds. And um, uh, ultimately, if infections do happen too often, sometimes we do use this as an indication to intervene and uh, suppress CLL uh, using treatments. Uh, however, even before then, there are certain things which we can do about infections. One is uh, vaccinations. And uh, uh, the, vac the vaccines that I routinely recommend are pneumonia vaccines, and now there are two of them. There is a Pneuma 23 and PCV13 vaccine, and they're administered in a certain schedule, and uh, I, there is a strong recommendation for all CLL patients to receive those vaccines. Now, um, in terms of uh, shingles vaccine, in general terms, uh, patients with CLL should not get any live vaccines. Uh, however, uh, in this day and age, we now have a killed uh, Shingrix uh, vaccine, which uh, patients, all patients with CLL will be um, uh, eligible for. Um, in terms of uh, flu vaccine, I certainly recommend it every year for my patients because, again, uh, patients with CLL would not... Uh, 
uh, uh, would be at high risk for flu and its complications. Um, uh, there are sometimes what we can do for patients with CLL as supportive care uh, to prevent uh, those infections is use something called intravenous immunoglobulin. So this is a blood product which is pulled from many donors and contains antibodies against all sorts of uh, infectious agents that uh, 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 people encounter um, in the community. And uh, we only resort that uh, for patients who suffer from frequent infections, pneumonias, frequent hospitalizations, many courses of antibiotics, and who also have low immunoglobulin levels. So we typically would check those immunoglobulin levels and decide if intravenous immunoglobulin would be appropriate. And again, as I said, for some of those folks, uh, we, uh, we decide to introduce therapy, particularly if other symptoms of progressive disease uh, are present. So other complications of CLL that sometimes we deal with is uh, uh is skin cancer. So CLL does have um, does put uh, patients at risk for other cancers, and particularly non-melanoma skin cancers. So for all my patients, I recommend regular, at least annual visits uh, to a dermatologist with regular skin exam, and certainly being attuned to um, uh, limiting exposure to ultraviolet. You know, using uh, SPF 50 sun protection screen or covering up skin, and uh, that's a good thing for everybody, but particularly uh, for patients with CLL, as those skin cancers can be uh, quite a nuisance. I recommend vitamin D for the for the majority of my patients. Um, um, now that I we both Dr. Pegel and I practice in the Northwest, where some sun sometimes is scarce. Um, I, I find that most patients have low vitamin D levels, and uh, it has been shown that progression of CLL may be slower in patients who have normal vitamin D levels. So I generally recommend vitamin D or multivitamins for all patients uh, with CLL. In terms of anemia in CLL, it becomes one of the complications when CLL progresses, um, and there are a couple of different mechanisms for it, which we wouldn't necessarily go into, but at that point, it, be it often becomes um, an indication to treat uh, CLL. So there is some of the supportive care that can be introduced for patients with CLL, and most of it is really not very interfering, so that patients who uh, are undergoing uh, watch and wait uh, for CLL uh, do not necessarily have a significant modification of uh, uh, their lifestyle. So in terms of uh, dealing with CLL and its, uh, its uh, other health problem and, its, and comorbidities, I think it becomes particularly important when uh, uh, patients uh, with CLL uh, begin to uh, choose choose therapy. And there are certain symptoms that we watch out for before we decide to treat. Those would be progressive lymphadenopathy, developing anemia or low platelet count, developing certain symptoms such as fatigue, weight loss, um, um, uh, night sweats, etc. So that's why we typically would meet with patients with CLL every four or six months to discuss all those symptoms, whether they are present, whether they have emerged, and uh, 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 evaluate the uh, 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 the status of, uh, of, of of blood. And uh, often uh, uh, the comorbidities, the drugs uh, uh, that uh, patients, medications that patients take, but also quality of life concerns and goal, patient goals uh, come into play uh, in in selection of therapy. And uh, uh, Dr. Pagel has mentioned ibrutinib, as, uh, as an, as, which is a new oral agent that we often now use in therapy of CLL. It has been approved for both patients with previously, a tre a previously treated CLL as well as previously untreated CLL, so we can now use it in any setting. And it, its use certainly has increased uh, since approval a few years ago. Um, uh, this drug does have uh, certain side effects, and about 20 to 30 percent of all patients who start ibrutinib actually uh, may discontinue the drug for the reason of uh, side effects. So uh, monitoring of those adverse events uh, is very important. In fact, we actually 
I did a small analysis across several centers where we determined that folks who had higher burden of medical problems were more likely to discontinue. And it's not entirely clear why, but one aspect which is important to remember is drug interactions between ibrutinib and other medications that patients might take. Um, it's also important for other for chemotherapy and other targeted therapies as well, but with uh, common use of abrutinib now, it becomes particularly important. So I would always encourage uh, uh, for folks with CLL who start abrutinib therapy to discuss their other medications uh, with their healthcare provider and how they may affect uh, um, uh, the toxicities. Uh, the toxicities of this drug has been at this point well described, and uh, we, I think we are becoming better and better at managing them. There are some which uh, are difficult uh, to manage except to uh, uh, reduce the dose of the drug or uh, to introduce a drug holiday such as fatigue. Um, 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 uh, th there are others which potentially could be managed with um, other medications. So, uh, for example, um, uh, joint pains or muscle pains. And often those joint pains would be somewhat different uh, from osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis joint pains. Uh, uh, they can be quite a nuisance uh, with uh, ibrutinib and are uh, sometimes a reason uh, to discontinue. Um, uh, but uh, typically they would affect one or two joints and may actually migrate from day to day. So, um, uh, and again, in contrast to, uh, say, osteoarthritis or other underlying joint conditions, they would develop after a patient starts taking a brutinib. And uh, often we would use uh, something like Tylenol for them or, again, reducing the dose. Um, uh, so the toxicities in the GI tract are fairly common but tend to be um, uh, tend to improve with time. Uh, so does uh, uh, bruising. Uh, early on, it may be quite pronounced, but also um, uh, may, 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 may get better with time as well. And uh, bruising is, uh, is an inherent, uh, is an inherent uh, effect of a bruising on the platelets, which are small uh, marks of cells which are responsible for clotting our blood. The brutal tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, tyrosine kinase, which uh, Dr. Pegel has mentioned, is very important in, uh, in platelet signaling and blood coagulation. So it's essentially a class effect of the drug. Uh, one uh, side effect which may sometimes be difficult uh, uh, to prevent or control is uh, heart arrhythmias, particularly atrial fibrillation. Um, and uh, sometimes if it's, if it's uh, significant, uh, uh, then we, are, we have to discontinue ibrutinib altogether. Uh, other times we are just able to control it, and there are certain risk factors which, where some patients are at high risk for atrial fibrillation than others. And then finally, um, elevated blood pressure can also be a problem with ibrutinib, and uh, that risk doesn't go away the longer a uh, patient is taking a brooding uh, for the then um, the higher the chance of developing high blood pressure with time so that's something which I look at consistently now in my patients who have been on a brooding for several years uh, however most of those side effects develop in the first six eight months and um, a lot of them actually do get better with time. So nevertheless, ibrutinib as a novel targeted agent um, is a, a very important asset that we have now and has really been a game changer and a life prolonging medication um, uh, in for patients with CLL. Now, there are certain second-generation protein kinase inhibitors which are now in clinical trials, which uh, are, are hoped to have a more favorable side effect profile. Uh, so I would, again, always encourage uh, seeking those out and participating in clinical trials uh, with novel protein kinase inhibitors. Um, in terms of chemoimmunotherapy, the main risk there would be infection, and uh, um, uh, that's often uh, we are more accustomed to manage those, 
particularly in the community, compared, uh, say, with all the diversity of side effects that we encounter with ibrutinib. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think the choice between chemoimmunotherapy, between a brutinib for treatment or any other agent uh, becomes, uh, is based on the patient's uh, other histories and often on their goals of care. Unfortunately, sometimes cost always um, uh, gets into play. So uh, I'm at the end of my uh, 13 minutes, and uh, I would be happy to answer some questions uh, at the end of uh, this meeting, but I just want to hand this off to uh, Perry Kaufman now uh, to continue. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Denwell. That was really excellent. And a lot of issues that you addressed are things that people struggle with, and so you gave them a lot of good hints, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Patty Kaufman. Ms. Patricia Kaufman is co-founder and executive director of the COL Society, Inc. And Ms. Kaufman will be addressing um, all the services of the COL Society, um, and particularly she'll be focusing on the COL Society's free expert access program and COL-specific patient support groups. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, CLL Society is here to help with a website full of patient-friendly resources. Whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage in your disease process. We teach, we explain, and we connect. We know that smart patients get smart care, so we've developed tools to make you a smarter patient. As media, we cover all the major hematology conferences where we interview the world's top CLL researchers on cutting-edge advances in treatment options, and we explain what this research means to PCLL patients. We demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms. We cut through the confusion with our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can acquire an understanding of the language of CLL. Got your lab results from your healthcare provider, but you don't know what they mean? Compare them to our chart of normal lab values to understand what they mean. Let us connect you with other CLL patients. The CLL Society has more than 25 CLL-specific support groups meeting monthly across the country, and 10 more are currently forming. Plan to attend one of our 12 upcoming patient educational forums. This is where we gather the best minds in CLL to provide you with a half-day, in-depth look at the many facets of CLL treatment. If you are one of those patients who does not have access to a CLL expert, please come to our website and apply to be considered as a candidate for our no-cost expert access program. We have dozens of openings currently available. The research and short surveys that we do on our website become your voice, informing healthcare providers, CLL researchers, and the pharmaceutical industry as to what CLL patients really want in their treatment. Visit our website today to get the kind of knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL. Oh, that was really terrific, Ms. Coffin. That was really wonderful. And, and just there, it's been such a pleasure working with Ms. Coffin and the CLL Society. And actually, I do want all of you to take note of the um, CLL Society's free expert access program. Please do consider um, applying for that. As Ms. Coffin said, there are many slots. It's such a unique program. And also, they have many CLL-specific support groups as well. Um, so... Um, Thank you so much, Ms. Kotzen, and what a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. Um, we're going to have time for questions in just a minute. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then um, we're going to take your questions. So get all your questions ready so we can all be ready to take your questions. Um, so I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. It's a national nonprofit organization. We provide a host of services. And those services include uh, counseling services, which means a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers. And many of you call us on the telephone, as well as um, visit our website um, at www.cancercare.org, or call us at 1-800-813-4673. In addition to our individual counseling, we also offer support groups. We do them on the telephone and online, 
And the online groups are particularly popular. We now have over 138 online groups. And many of you utilize them um, actually both in the United States and internationally because time, there is no time concern about your posting. And our social workers moderate those calls um, so that they're carefully moderated as well. And um, so I do, and they are on every topic you could imagine, both in all different age groups, for young adults, for caregivers, for older adults, for people with COL, um, all those different resources are available to you as well, um, and all different types of cancers as well. Um, and um, we do offer both practical and financial assistance. Financial assistance is specifically for people in the United States. All of our other services are available internationally. We also have um, a lot of publications, and we also, of course, offer these workshops as well. So, and now we have time for questions. And so now we're going to um, ask all of you to, um, oh, I'm going to ask actually um, Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question. And actually, um, uh, we do have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and that question, although I think Dr. Dan Love addressed it in part, I'm going to just, um, the question really was about, um, it comes up a lot in that programs, um, the question about the anti-herpes Foster virus vaccine, and should a person receive it if they have COL? Um, I know I, I cannot receive any vaccines with a live virus. So, Dr. Daniel, I thought you did address this. If you could address this again, that would be most helpful. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, that's right. So, we have shunned the live uh, uh, herpes vaccines, uh, but uh, the Shingix vaccine series is uh, totally fine. Um, and we have recommended it to all patients with COL. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and also another question, which is both for Dr. Um, um, Pagel and Dr. Danilov. Oh, Dr. Pagel, if you'd like to start with this one. Upon diagnosis, I was told I could have 15 to 20 years. Is this diagnosis? Um, is this from diagnosis, and is it based on having treatment or not? Thank you, and I, this is a question to answer, of course, generally, um, but uh, um, I think just um, your thoughts about this would be probably helpful to this participant and to many on the call as well. Sure, of course. Um, you know, it's always hard for us to uh, give exact uh, description when we don't really know the exact clinical case. And really when we try to make uh, prognostic uh, decisions or I should say provide prognostic information, we really look at a handful of factors that tell us a little about the biology of the CLL. And we specifically recommend that patients always have a test done which is called a FISH test. FISH stands for fluorescence in situ hybridization. And what that test does is it shows us or describes some specific genetic changes that can be associated with CLL. It turns out that most everybody, more than 90% of patients with CLL, will have some genetic aberration or some change to their chromosomes, perhaps a little bit of a loss of a certain part of a chromosome or an addition of, of some part of a chromosome. That's very, very common. And when we take those things, we put them into risk groups. I'll also mention that there's a second test that is not widely done but should be very widely done that we're doing now. It's looking at the mutational status of the immunoglobulin heavy chain. Now, I won't get into the details behind it. Perhaps you can read about it, but know that if you have a, not undergone the normal mutational process of the immunoglobulin heavy chain, that's a little less favorable than if you have undergone the mutational pattern. We take that information, as I said, that and the chromosomal changes, and we put that into risk groups. And most everybody with CLL falls in relatively low risk groups. Most people don't fall into high risk groups. 
And in fact, those people with garden variety CLL, and I kind of probably shouldn't say it that way, but those patients who have that kind of CLL do extremely well. And again, that's the vast majority of patients. They may live for years and decades, depending on the time they're diagnosed, and actually not have any uh, life-threatening complication related to their CLL. Again, that's not to say that they don't need treatment over time, but I have had patients I've been following for 20 years who have never even gotten treatment. That's unusual. Most people fall in the middle of a bell-shaped curve where, you know, they're watched for quite a long time. They get some treatment, go into remission. That may last for years, get treatment again, may last for years. And, in fact, most people, as I kind of alluded to earlier, will be in their 80s or even maybe 90s. And, uh, of course, everybody will unfortunately die of something, and maybe it's not the CLL. So the prognosis is really from the time when we make a diagnosis. But, you know, most people who have CLL, by the time we make a diagnosis, have had it for a long time. So I'd encourage you not to put a ton of stock into, oh, 15 or 20 years, and when did the clock start ticking? That's not really the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to say, you have low-risk disease, or you might have intermediate-risk disease, or something else. And if you do, you're going to do well, or we're going to have to think about treatment in a year or two. But it's not really going to tell you how you're going to do for long-term survival. That really comes down to biology. And most patients' biology behaves in a very indolent, slow-growing fashion, and people do extremely well. But if you're being told that you're going to live for years and decades, that tells you that things are probably pretty good. And especially if you're being diagnosed at the median age of 70, well, if you're getting 15 or 20 years, I'll take that. I'm interested in getting to 90, I suppose. And uh, and in fact, if we look at patients like that 70-year-old who gets diagnosed with CLL and compare it to, a, let's say, somebody who might be an identical twin to that person, but just doesn't have CLL, that they live about they live the same amount of time. So we like to know a little about prognosis. It's important to us, but I would encourage you not to get too bogged down into it. The idea is that it just gives you a sense of this is an indolent, slow-growing disease, and likely you're going to do extremely well. And that's the description of what I had, what I heard here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and Dr. Damov, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I, I agree. It, it may with the, what everything that Dr. Pago has said. It it uh, it is often very difficult to say exactly how an individual would do. We we are very good at uh, uh, determining how thousand uh, patients with CLL would do. But when it comes to the individual, there is so there is so much variability in the disease characteristics and uh, in um, in uh, in in other. Uh, uh, and other medical problems that uh, patients might have. And, you know, again, honestly, uh, now that we have all those fancy new drugs, uh, we haven't even been using them uh, long enough uh, to know what would happen uh, a decade later. So um, on one hand, it's the unknown. On the other hand, it's the excite it's exciting time because it can only get better. So I, I that uh, that's the only thing I would add. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we have a telephone question, I believe. Thank you. Our question comes from Steve A. Your line is open. Yes, this is his wife, uh, Nina. Um, um, my husband was recently diagnosed with atypical aggressive CLL. Um, he started in Brutinib about five and a half weeks ago, and it's been fabulous. But my question is regarding um, side effects from other drugs. He was usually prescribed, he also has Parkinson's disease, um, a drug for Parkinson's, and then after that a drug for uh, prostate enlargement. And both times he had um, t uh, a complete cessation of urination. Um, could that be interaction with brutinib? Um, and if so, how do you, I guess, communicate with doctors who are not aware of these side effects um, to be leery of adding new drugs uh, to a brutinib? That's an excellent question. Thank you, Dr. Damov. Do you want to address that? Well, so I, I do not believe those drugs uh, that you mentioned would have actually an interaction with the brutinib. I, uh, what I was talking more about is interaction in, uh, the, in, in the liver as those drugs are metabolized by the liver. 
So I don't know the exact uh, agents that have that are being used uh, for your husband, but um, uh, at, at least as far as I know, the Parkinson's drugs and the prostate enlargement drugs, as far as I'm, I know, the common drugs that are used for those conditions would not would not have that interaction with the brutinium. But it's something again to uh, check with uh, your treating physician or the pharmacist. And Dr. Pagel, do you want to add anything to that? Well, no, I think Dr. Nanolop said that well, but I do want to reiterate that message and that these drugs do interact with other drugs. So anyone who's getting, you know, at one of these targeted treatments, they should talk to their doctor and make sure the doctor knows what other drugs they're on. And there often needs to be a consultation with a pharmacist, as Alexi mentioned. So uh, there's a pharmacist associated with most all oncology clinics. Those are important interactions to have and discussions to facilitate. And may I also ask just a follow-up question to that in terms of is it possible that there's a, side, there's a drug being given to manage a side effect that could be affecting it, or that wouldn't be the case? Um, well, it's certainly possible that any drug can interact with these agents, and that sounds like that might be more the case here. There are certain drugs that uh, can cause urinary retention, right? And uh, they may be not metabolized as well uh, with the use of uh, one of these target agents. Um, in general, though, it's not due to the CLL drug, and we might see something like this with another agent. So that that's certainly possible. Excellent. Sorry. I hope this is helpful to you. Go back to your training healthcare team and you now have some more information and um thank you for that excellent question. Um and we have um a question now from one of our online participants. Um and this is for Dr. Damlov. Um I'm going to read it and, and ask me if I need to reread it if it's not clear. I have 11Q deletion, unmutated, was on ibutinib for 62 months, developed resistance, went to venetoclast last December. Will I develop a resistance of venetoclax? Um, if so, how long? If so, can I go to another oral therapy like ibutinib, idolizumab, or anything else? Long question, and again, it's a general, uh, Dr. Danilov can only give a kind of general question, then we, of course, advise you to yeah. ask Right. So it, it sounds like uh, the Vinitaclax is working right now, so that's great. Um, and uh, uh, yes, so in some folks, uh, resistance to development of resistance to ibrutinib, you know, in some folks it does develop after four or five years of therapy, and venetoclax is uh, uh, an active agent in those in, in such situation. It has been well studied specifically in, in such situation, and it sounds like it is working. In terms of how long it will work for, um, again, unfortunately, we don't know. It performed really well in studies for those patients where where it worked for ibrutinib-resistant disease. It certainly remains an unmet clinical need, and the further options would be, yes, some of the uh, novel, uh, some of the new targeted agents, including the PI3K inhibitors that have been mentioned. Um, I would strongly encourage uh, looking for a clinical trial uh, with uh, some of the novel agents, uh, as this this really becomes a somewhat an unmet clinical need there with folks who progress on both brutinib and venetoclax. Um, arguably, if chemotherapy has not been used before, that also may be uh, potentially an option, depending on um, uh, what the, the exact situation is and how resistance developed. So there will certainly be options there, uh, both old therapies and new therapies. And again, I would encourage uh, looking into uh, clinical trials as well. Then CAR T-cell therapy is also a very uh, interesting new emerging field uh, in lymphoma and CLL. It's been approved in lymphoma. It's still under investigation in CLL. <clears throat> there are some very good results with it as well. So there will certainly be options, um, cell cellular therapy. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and... Um, 
another question from one of our online participants for uh, Dr. Um, Pago. Um, in clinical trials, are the responses of SLL patients basically the same as CLL patients? Oh, it's a common question, a good question. You know, we view small lymphocytic lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia as the same disease. One just manifests itself more in lymph nodes, that's the SLL, and one a little more in the blood and the bone marrow, that's the CLL. Biologically, why they behave a little bit differently, we don't really know. But if you were to take a CLL cell from a lymph node or a I'm sorry, from the blood or an SLL cell from a lymph node, and you looked at them side by side, you wouldn't be able to tell which one is which. They have all the same features and characteristics. So in general, when we approach CLL in a clinical trial, that's the same as we would do for SLL and vice versa. Thank you. And um, actually, this question, I'll give it to Adele up as well, um, is in watch and waiting, what exactly are we waiting for? What is what is intervention? When is intervention indicated? Sure, absolutely. So that's a very good question. Um, some some people would call it watch and wait. Others would call it watch and worry. Um, it, it yeah, it really depends on the personality sometimes. But I always encourage a long watch and wait period. Um, we are waiting for symptoms such as uh, uh, persistent night sweats, weight loss. Uh, progressive uh, lymphadenopathy, which grows fast. You know, sometimes um, uh, uh, patients may notice lymph nodes in CLL, and that's okay. Though those can actually wax and wax and wane. Uh, they can grow over a few days, then get smaller. Uh, many patients almost always notice some lymph nodes when um, they get sick with an upper respiratory infections. But if they grow consistently and enlarge and uh, cause symptoms by themselves or just become a cosmetic problem, uh, we can see the treatment. Um, uh, and then again, we check uh, everybody's blood every four, six months and look for uh, signs of anemia or low platelet count or low neutrophil count. So we typically do not use the high white cell count in itself, which many patients with CLL would have elevated white cell count. We don't use that as an indication to treat typically, but either those symptoms which I mentioned uh, or uh, finding progressive disease on the blood by identifying anemia or low platelet count is what we typically uh, are on the lookout for. Um, Dr. Pickles, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I think that Dr. Denwald summarized that very well. I, I probably don't have much to add there. Okay, thank you. Um, and another question um, for uh, Dr. Pagel. Um How often do you see other autoimmune come up due to CLL on or off treatment? My issue is I developed oral lichen planus, dermatomycetes, and a few other skin issues. I am... Um, on 300 milligrams of venetoclast, achieve no evidence of CLL. My blood numbers are normal for being on venetoclast. Um, now getting high dose IVIG. Yeah, this is a challenging situation, um, and I uh, will be hesitant to be too specific here uh, because we tend to approach each of these kinds of cases in an individual way. These types of autoimmune processes are relatively rare in CLL. We do see one specific autoimmune process, not that uncommonly, and that's where we make a, a CLL patient would make an antibody directed towards the red blood cells, and you can get what we call an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. In general, though, that's relatively rare in the expression of Problems that are manifesting in the skin or even in other places are even less common. These uh, might be sometimes uh, immune-mediated, and this large part likely are here. Um, and, in fact, it's also important to say that if it is related to the CLL, it can happen with very low burdens of disease. In general, though, if we treat the CLL, these other problems tend to get better. So it's always difficult to really know if the disease is related directly to the CLL or if it's uh, perhaps somewhat unrelated. We do know that these things can be um, 
develop on their own. Dermatomyositis is lots of different causes of that as an example. Um, and is it a, what we call a perineoplastic syndrome or not? Sometimes uh, it's hard to tease out. But in general, I would say it's really uncommon. And when we treat the disease, the CLL, often those things should get better. And I hope that's the case in this in this setting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and um, a question for um, Dr. Danilov. Um, my husband has CLL. Is there anything I can do to reduce the risk of, for CLL for our children? Is CLL hereditary? Yeah, so that's a very good question. It's not uh, a hereditary disease. Uh, it does. There is a little bit of a familial risk. Uh, uh, it's more common in men uh, for one clear reason. There is a little bit more of. A, there is a little bit of a familial risk. Maybe patient, folks who have CLL, uh, relatives with CLL, uh, one you know, 50%, 100% more likely uh, to to have CLL. Um, uh, but uh, again, this is pretty low, and considering that uh, the disease is not the most common disease, at least in terms of how many uh, uh, how many patients are diagnosed every year, it's about 20,000, say compared with 200,000 with breast cancer. Um, they, they, we don't do much about it, and there is not much you can do to reduce those risks. And again, uh, this is uh, uh, the disease where most patients are diagnosed in late 60s, early 70s. So, uh, the, uh, so my, the short answer is no, it's not uh, hereditary, and uh, there is not necessarily an increased risk for the family. Thank you. Um, and um, question for um, Dr. Pagel. Um, there's a lot of good questions here. It's an amazing audience here and wonderful speakers as well. Um, so uh, for Dr. Pagel, I was diagnosed with CLL 1.5 years ago. My, IG, my, my IgG is 300, which seems awfully low to me. How does that compare to other CLL patients? Thank you. And again, um, to answer that in a general way, Dr. Pagel, of course. Well, you know, lots of patients will have, um, with CLL will have, a somewhat compromised immune system, at least perhaps in this setting, on paper. So I would say 300 is not dramatically low, and in fact, many people out there have uh, immunoglobulin levels of 300 that don't have CLL. Where it becomes an issue is if you're having repeated infections. And as I said, most people with a count of 300 uh, IgG level will not have infections. Uh, but we watch for those things, and they're very important to understand. So those are things in particular like a chronic sinusitis or upper respiratory infections, bronchitis. Those are the ones that tend to manifest itself uh, more frequently with low immunoglobulin levels. And if you're not having those types of things, and of course, everybody will get one of those here and there. I'm talking about repeated multiple infections. And if you're not having one of those, the, the number doesn't mean much. It just means something we should keep an eye on. But when the infections come around and uh, they're problematic, and Dr. Danilov alluded to this, then that's when we might give intravenous gamma globulin or those IgG proteins back to a patient delivered intravenously to kind of fight off infections and keep people healthy. But most people will go through their entire CLL life and never get that infusion of IVIG or gamma globulin, and most people will do very well regardless of what their immunoglobulin level might be. So I wouldn't focus necessarily too hard on that unless you're having repeated infections. Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've been remarkable. This has been a phenomenal call, and I want to I want to thank you so much, and I also want to thank all the participants who asked really such wonderful questions. But um, we do encourage you to take the information, both the people who ask questions and those of you who still have questions, go back to your treating healthcare team with any information you may have learned today and that you then run it past them in terms of, as many of our speakers have said, um, you know, run it past them in terms of your own situation. Um, now, I know there are many of you who are still in queue and have questions, so I just want to give you resources. Um, Dr. Pagel has mentioned some of those wonderful resources. And of course, we want to lead with the CLL Society. They just have a wonderful uh, website to go to. Um, we also, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And in your evaluations, you're going to be getting all those resources 
um, as will be listed there that you can access to get help with your questions further. Um, so that those are just the greatest resources to go to. I cannot encourage you enough um, to take advantage of the CLL Society's free expert access program as well as their uh, national CLL-specific patient support groups throughout the country. That's a really wonderful resource for each of you. Um, most importantly, as we're about to conclude the program today, I would not want, want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with CLL. I hope you feel now connected to uh, not only to your healthcare team, that's really very important, but also to resources that you can contact anytime that you would find useful. And for the online programs, of course, they're, they're all the time. They're always available to you. Um, and so you may be living somewhere where there isn't anyone that you know who has CLL, um, and now you know that there are lots of people with CLL and there are lots of people that you can, lots of resources that you can access to get the support that you need on a regular basis. You can call any of these places or email them or visit their website as often as you wish. Also, you can listen to this program again. Um, it becomes a podcast after the program. Give it a day or two. Um, with today being Thursday, it'll probably be up and running by Monday. Um, and it's up 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, for at least a year um, on both on the Cancer Care website. Um, and probably the CLL Society will have a link to it as well. Um, and um, also there's a part two to this program. So um, it's taking charge of your treatment schedule, and that's occurring on November 29th. And we also have a program um, titled Older Persons Living with CLL on Thursday, December 13th. Um, and it's a little different time. It's from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. So do you take advantage of all these programs that are coming up? And um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.